there are about 350,000 churches in the United States of America. Did you know that? 350,000. Which means that sometime this weekend, there's going to be about 350,000 sermons preached in America. Probably even more, because there are lots of, ser- lots of churches that, that preach many, many, many services in a weekend. That's a lot of talking. And when each pastor or preacher is done with their sermon, they will somehow try to close the whole service and, and say something memorable or whatever they want to do with it. Because, you know, that kind of ending the thing is... As a matter of fact, there's a school of thought when you're, when you're taught to preach. And it's the classes that you take in college and seminary called uh, homiletics. And they, some of them actually say you write your conclusion first. You write the ending of the sermon first. And then you, you work towards that. Because... Sometimes if you haven't done that, it's hard to end a sermon. Those are the sermons that just keep going, and you're sitting there going, when is he going to stop? And I'm up here going, how do I close this thing? Things like that. But at any rate, long ago, Jesus Christ, early in his ministry, now, so early, in fact, he hadn't even chosen all, his, all of his disciples yet. Some of his disciples are yet to come, but he's, he's chosen a few of them. He preached a sermon. It wasn't a very long sermon. I have no idea exactly how long it took him to preach it. I don't know if we have the Reader's Digest condensed version in Scripture or if that's the actual sermon that he did. I don't know. But I do know this. When he was done, he looked at the people, and this is what he said about it. Okay? He said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Not because it had a good foundation, but because it has its foundation on the rock. In other words, it wasn't the strength of the foundation, it was what kind of soil this house was built on. Then he said this, But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, you understand then that what he just said to these people is, the sermon I just preached to you, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus walked up a little hill, sat down and preached it. The sermon I just preached, the words I just preached to you, he said, are so important that if you will take these words and do them, you will have a rock-solid life. Now, it doesn't mean that the rest of the Bible isn't true. It doesn't mean that there's not other great things in the Bible or that Jesus didn't have other things to say. It's all good. It's all true. It's all great to read. But this sermon was so important He said, now that you've heard it, go out and do it. And if you go out and do it, here's my personal promise to you, he says, you will be rock solid. Wow. It's quite an ending. No altar call, no communion, nothing like that. Just great words that said, go out there and do it. Now, we're just beginning a series of sermons based on that sermon. I know that sounds strange, but that's the way it works. That's what I'm paid to do. Sorry, guys. 
take that wonderful sermon and then create sermons and sermons and sermons as I told you when I'm done with this series when we're done looking at his one sermon the Christmas tree will be up trust me so and we're calling it this seven and a half minutes to a rock solid life why because you can easily read again at my normal speed I read the Sermon on the Mount in about four minutes and I'm not really a speed reader it's just that's how fast I read if I slow it down it takes me six if I really just take my time with it it takes me seven and a half minutes to read the we're calling this seven and a half minutes to a rock solid life but before we go any farther I want you to remember this and you're gonna read it with me here we go ready let's read it together I can read the Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes but to be rock solid I have to put it into practice every day. You're going to see that so many times, you're going to go sick of it. You're going to say, not that slide again. But there's a reason. Because we, in our Western mindset, think that just because we know something, that's all we really have to do with it. By the time you're done with this series, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you can do it every day in seven and a half minutes. Do it two or three times a week, seven and a half minutes. You could know the Sermon on the Mount. You could memorize the Sermon on the Mount. Somebody here ought to, ought to take that challenge and try it. You know, if you're going to memorize the sermon, you can do it. But you know what it's going to mean for your life? Nothing. Unless you put it into practice. It's not knowing the sermon. It's not reading the sermon. It's not studying the sermon. It's doing it. So one more time, read this with me. I can read the Sermon on the Mount in seven and a half minutes. But to be rock solid, I have to put it into practice every day. Man, get that in your minds. Get that in your minds. Let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount just in general. I'll see if I can explain to you what he's doing in this sermon. Um, how many of you have a garage that is clean and orderly and everything is right where it needs to be and it's just perfectly placed? Let me see those hands. You sick people here. <laughs> I have the name of a good Christian counselor. We can get you all the help you need for your <laughs> compulsive, obsessive behavior. For the rest of you normal people, don't you sometimes walk into this garage, this cluttered garage, and, and, and you can't find anything, and you can't get to anything, and you've got stuff in here you really don't need. You think it's important to keep it, but you really don't need it. And you're walking around stuff, and you're breaking stuff, and you can't get the stuff that's really important. Don't you ever look at that garage and say to yourself, one day... I'm going to clean this baby out. One day, I'm going, to, I'm going to rearrange it all. I'm going to get rid of the stuff that isn't important. I'm going to take the stuff that is important. I'm going to put it where, where I can use it so that, so that everything is right where I need it to and my garage is clean and orderly. You ever do that? These people who are like that, you can give lessons, all right? The Sermon on the Mount is kind of like garage cleaning for your life. You take a look at the clutter of our life, the value system of our life. We're indoctrinated at a very early age with the values of the world. Things that, that the world says are so important. And after a lifetime of buying into those values, our lives become so cluttered with things that really don't matter. And the things that are important get pushed off to one side. You can't get to them because you've got to get through all this junk that you've believed. 
The Sermon on the Mount is basically where Jesus says, let's clean up the garage of your life. Let's throw out the stuff that you thought was important and it's not. Let's reorder the things that I know are important and maybe you didn't realize are important. Let's put your life in order. And in a way that it's going to make you rock solid. You see, we started here or we ended the sermon last week with this statement right here. You can't build a rock solid life on the values of the world. You can't do it. And yet we try. We try to take the values of the world and build on that. The best way to be happily married is to values of the world. The best way to be successful financially is values of the world. The best way to feel good about yourself is values of the world. We build and we build and we build and we build and it doesn't work. See, this is what God says. You know the scripture. If you don't, it's a good one to memorize. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If we're going to build that rock-solid life, that's what Jesus is trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount. He's trying to say, now look, you're thinking wrong. Your values are wrong. Your life is built on things that won't work. I'm going to rearrange that for you. I'm going to tell you what's really important. I'm going to show you how to build your life on the things that will always last. Because my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, or my thoughts above your thoughts, and my ways above your ways, says the Lord. We have so much unlearning to do. And that makes sense. Because we are bombarded with the values of the world. And we assimilate them. Sometimes we don't even realize we did it. Until Jesus steps forward and says, by the way, you're thinking wrong. Let's do it right. And you go, wow. That's what he's going to do in the whole sermon. Which will make it sometimes uncomfortable because... Sometimes we like the values of the world. Sometimes the values of the world really resonate with us. Why is that? You get to answer. Why is it that sometimes, if we're so Christian, the values of the world should, should you know, make us uncomfortable, and yet sometimes the values of the world make us very comfortable. We like them. Why? It's what we've been taught. Good. And why else? What? The flesh, meaning not the fact that I have too much of it. <laughs> You're speaking of what we call human nature. The fact is that we are born into this world with kind of a broken human nature. And it's a human nature that, that resonates with those things that are not of God. We've looked at that before. We'll keep looking at it from time and time again where Paul talks about the fact that, that there's something in me that wants to do those things that are of the world. So when someone comes along and gives me a value of the world, there's something within me. If I'm not controlled by the Holy Spirit of God and I am not fully controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, something in me that resonates and says, yeah. You know, if I could just lose 10 or 15 pounds, maybe I'd be a better person. 
when in fact you can lose 10 or 15 pounds and still be a creep. Yeah. Sometimes we like the values of the world. And so some of these things that Jesus says to us are going to be um, difficult. But again, it's not about knowing the values. It's not about understanding the difference between the values of the world and the values of Jesus Christ. It's about doing them. It's about putting them into practice. And he's going to start this whole Sermon on the Mount with one with the things that we really need to start putting into practice. So the first thing we need to put into practice is how we, cha- how we determine winners and losers. Now we're going to call them, or they have been called the Beatitudes. We're going to look at them in just a moment. But that's the first thing he's going to deal with. How do you determine winners and losers? The world looks at a winner and defines a winner. So you tell me from the world's point of view, who's a winner? Who wins in our world? The strong. The physically strong, the emotionally strong. Who wins in our world? The wealthy win in our world. Who wins in our world? The rich. Who wins in our world? How about the arrogant? Those people who just get there and they push and they drive and they have you, you drive and you drive and you push until you get to the top. Those people win. Are the people who suffer all the time, the people, do they win? No, who wins? The people who never have any problems. Those people who, who, are, who always have things go their way. They're the winners. This is really what the Beatitudes are all about. Who wins and who loses. It's what the word blessed really means. Okay? Think about the word blessed. Who has a blessed life? Well, you find somebody who's got money out the wazoo. And we say, oh man, they got a blessed life. How about the person who has never suffered loss? The person who's never really f- f- had to face the loss of, of a close person or a relationship. Everything goes their way. We say what? They have a blessed life. Who's blessed? Who wins and who loses? The world's going to tell us one thing. Jesus is going to tell us something else. Let's read together in the value system of Jesus who really has a blessed life and if you want to pronounce it blessed it works because it kind of rolls off the tongue but there's nothing holy about blessed versus blessed basically you could say winners and losers the winners of this world are blessed and this is what they're like if you want to we'll read them together and so we'll say how let's 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 just use the word blessed this time, okay? Sometimes we'll read it, we'll use the word blessed. Just to mix it up to make sure you don't fall asleep at this part of the sermon, okay? Here we go. This is what Jesus says about winners and losers. Who's blessed and who's not? Let's read it. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Next slide. There we go. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And all the people listening to that went, you've got to be kidding me. Those people are blessed? I always thought it was the rich people who were blessed. I thought it was the ruling class who was blessed. 
I thought it was the wealthy and the, and the, and the, the, the shop owners and the, the business people who were so successful. I thought it was those soldiers and those conquering heroes who came and were able to wipe out and, and to take over and, and, and rule a nation. I thought those were the blessed people. And Jesus said, no. You got it all wrong. So for the next uh, few times that I'm in the pulpit, as we look at the Beatitudes, we're going to be looking at this. Winners and losers. Who's a winner and who's a loser? And we're going to look at the difference between what the world says is a winner versus what Jesus says is a winner. And you're going to find that many of the people who we look at in the world as, as losers turn out to be the winners. So let's start here with this statement. Jesus has a strong affinity for the losers of the world. Now, I put it this way because I didn't want to say Jesus has a strong love for the, because he has a strong love for all of us. But you understand the word affinity? He's drawn to losers of the world. He sought them out. He hung out with them. He, he didn't hang out with, with the winners. He didn't hang out with the, with the ruling class. He didn't hang out with the wealthy people. He didn't hang out with that group that everybody said, they're the winners. He hung out with the great unwashed of Israel. The working class stiffs. The ones who smelled like fish because that's what they did for a living. The ones who didn't have their cupboards filled with food because they had to work every day. People who probably only had the clothes on their back. The rich people had enough clothes that they only had to do their laundry every now and then because they had different chains. The poor people, the, the losers, they had just what they were wearing and they go down every now and then and wash it. And those are the people Jesus sought and made incredible promises to. And you know why this is really good news for me? I'm a loser. Some of you may not be able to relate. I don't know. Um, it's hard to describe to you what I was before I met the Lord Jesus. Something in my life, I don't, I don't really can't go back and I don't really care what brought it all about, but I was a loser and that's how I saw myself. I wanted to stay in the back of every group in every room. I didn't want to be noticed. And sometimes when I was noticed, I was made fun of. Elementary school was okay. Middle school, what we called back then junior high school, was two years of living hell. I hated going to school because I knew sometime during that day I was going to be made fun of. I was a geek. Probably still am, I just don't care. <laughs> Man. So much so, and by the way, everybody could see that, and I've told you this story before, when I was first invited to a church on a Sunday night, Linda, who's now my wife, my girlfriend at the time, invited me, and I walked in on a Sunday night, and uh, first time really ever in a church like that. Um, we didn't go to church growing up at all, and, and 
I had a, a big afro, not because I wanted one, it's just that's all my hair would do. I wanted the Beatles hair, but that just wasn't going to happen for me, okay? Afro, and that's the way it was. Uh, the shirt that I'm wearing, I had to turn around backwards because of the cigarette hole that was in the back. I just started really getting into drugs rather um, significantly. And uh, I walked in with Linda on a Sunday night, and uh, later on I found out what one guy in the church, who turned out to be a very good friend and a great mentor, he, he remembered and he told me this just after I was going into the ministry. He pulled me aside and said, I wanted you to know what I said to myself the first time I saw you. When I saw you walk in the doors with Linda on that Sunday night, I said to myself, what a loser Linda has chosen for herself. And he was right. My family was poor. My father had been unemployed for several years because of aerospace. He was a great engineer, but that was gone. In anything that the world said was a winner or a loser, I was a loser. One of the reasons that I was connected to a church and why when I started going, I fell in love with it. I fit there. Even though everybody around me looked at me as a loser, they didn't tell me that. Thank you, Father. What would have happened if that guy would have walked up that Sunday night and said, Oh, Linda, you can do so much better, which would have been a good statement. True, by the way. But remember, not all truth has to be said. Okay? Keep that in mind. Just because it's true doesn't mean you need to say it. That's a whole different sermon. What if he'd walked up and said, oh, man, This guy's a loser. Dump him. I would have never gone back. But because the church is a place for losers, I kept going. And I began to hear about a man who lived so long ago who loved the losers of the world. Who didn't go to the prom queens and the homecoming kings and queens and the, and the captains of the football teams and the, and all, and the, and the, the head of the student council and, and, all, and the rich people. He didn't go to them. He came to people just like me and he said, you know what? The kingdom of God is for you. Perhaps in our mind today, if we think Jesus were to come back to this world, the first thing you do is go to Washington, D.C., begin to hang out with the president and the senators, or you go to the state house and go hang out with the governor, or you go to the rich, or you go some... You know what? He would probably be not even here. Where would he probably be right now? Feeding the homeless. And saying to them, you have nothing except everything. For I am going to give you the very kingdom of God. <laughs> oh, man. Let me show you what Jesus had to say about the winners of the world. You may not like it. Woe to you who are rich. For you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now. For you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how they He just said to the winners. Okay, the rich winners. 
The, the people who are well-fed, the people who have absolutely no problems, the people that everybody speaks highly of. You're in such trouble. You don't even realize it. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said basically the same thing when he's talking to, because he's writing to a church, a church of losers, a church of the lower class, a church of just the poor people, because that's who really the early church was all about. And he writes to him and says, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world, the losers, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Do you understand how important this was to that group of losers sitting on this hill? Imagine this group of people who have been looked down upon by the religious leaders. And we can show you that. I don't have time today, but if you want to, I can show you lots of scriptures where the religious leaders look down their nose at these poor people, the rabble, the sinners, the tax gatherers, all that. And the, the religious leaders and the, and the leaders and the political leaders and the conquerors look down their noses at all these people sitting around. And Jesus says, you bunch of losers, I'm going to give you everything we're impressed by the winners of the world but you know what God isn't he's just not he's not impressed with your talent or your looks or your money or your status no matter one time Jesus looked at the people and he said this and it sounds cute to you I bet you it sounds cute to you I bet when you read it you're going to go aww don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Oh. He just called you sheep. Let's talk about sheep for a moment. Sheep are dumb. Smelly. They're on the bottom of the food chain, okay? Everything eats sheep. And if they're not cared for, they die. These are dumb creatures. Even today, is being called sheep a compliment? Well, they're just a big group of sheep. Is that a compliment today? No, we don't do that. Well, he's just acting like sheep. That's not a compliment. Even back then, everybody knew sheep were dumb. Jesus looked at them and said, You bunch of sheep. God loves you so much, he's going to give you everything. Could you imagine being in a culture or you're looked down upon, discriminated against all the time. And Jesus comes to you and he says, You get it all. God isn't going to give all this stuff to those winners, He's going to give it to you. That's how important. For the first time, someone looked at the losers of the world, the sheep, the great unwashed, the everybody, and said, you are important to the kingdom of God. If you are a loser today, that's good. I hope by the time we're done today, you can admit it, accept it, and move on. But I've got good news for you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to sum up Scripture for you in a sentence. Here it is. Jesus turns losers 
into winners through a victory that looked like a defeat. Jesus turns losers like us into winners because you get it all through a victory we call it the cross that looked like a defeat was there anybody that that day when on the cross celebrating yes no only the rulers who thought they won all of his disciples went off defeated they thought he lost he didn't lose it all through the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection he comes back and he says now you losers through me you get it all for the next couple of weeks, Pastor Kyle is going to be preaching, and, and while I don't know exactly what he's going to say, I guarantee that this will be the crux of it. All about Jesus dying for the unworthy to give them a relationship with God. All right, Kyle? Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, Jesus turns losers into winners through a victory that looked like a defeat. There it is. That's it. He looks at this congregation of losers out there as he's preaching. And he starts with what we call the Beatitudes. We've already read them. And he redefines for them the concept of winners and losers. He says, you think a winner looks like this. I'm going to tell you what a winner really looks like. What a blessed person really looks like. So I thought it would be kind of interesting. When we look at the Beatitudes, there's eight of them. We're going to look at each one of them. We're probably going to try to do two at a time. If we don't have enough time today to get through two, we'll just do one. And then we'll, we'll squeeze it in somewhere. But I thought, if the world was going to write a beatitude, what would it look like? If the world was going to talk about who is blessed, what would it look like? So, let's look at this. The world's first beatitude, okay? This is what I would say is the world's first beatitude, or the first beatitude of the world. And it would go like this. Blessed are the self-confident, for they will achieve their dreams. That's what you're taught, that's what you're told. The biggest thing in this world is to be sure of yourself, to have self-confidence, to get out there and do it. Who really wins in this world? Those people who are self-confident, who get out there and push. We work on building self-confidence. We tell our kids they can be anything that they choose to be, and it's a lie. Not true. Um, let's see, how old is our country now, our, our Constitution? What, about 130, 20-something years, 100, 225 years, something like that. Okay. For over those 225 years, how many people have decided and been self-confident that they would be President of the United States? How many actually made it? 44 so far. What about all those other people who were so self-confident that they could do it? You know what? I could be self-confident at an early age that I could be an NBA basketball player. Ain't going to happen, never did. I wasn't built that way. I wasn't created for that. When you look at your child and you say you can be anything you want to be, you're lying to them. What you're saying is it's your self-confidence that really makes the difference in this world. And if you will just buy into that, everything is possible and it's not true. It's a beatitude of the world. It is true to be able to say to them, you can be anything God created you to be. Anything God created you to be, you can become. So the first thing is to find out what he created you to do. What's your gift? What's your talents? Who are you? And you can do those things in him. 
But simply self-confidence isn't going to do it. See, this is God's truth. You ready? Here it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It isn't those self-confident, I can do it all kind of people. It's those people who look inside and accept their brokenness and accept their unworthiness. Who look inside and say, there... What's really important in this world, there's nothing in me there. See, let's put it this way then. The only way to really win is to put your confidence in Jesus. It isn't being self-confident. It's accepting the fact that in me, there's nothing that's really of eternal value. I will put my confidence, not in my abilities, but in Jesus. Trusting yourself and your abilities is a one-way ticket to hell. Oh, you can get it all. In the world today, you can get it all without self-confidence. But what did Jesus say about getting it all? Come on, tell me. Jesus looked and talked about getting it all. What did he say about that? What does it profit a man if he gains the world, gets it all, and what? You're so self-confident you can get in that business world and you can get it all. And then you die. And you will die. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. He's talking about uh, people who put their confidence in their ability to be religious. Okay? And sometimes we do that. And it's, by the way, one of the biggest dangers in the church. Out in the world, the biggest danger is putting your confidence in your ability to be good-looking or popular or rich. In the church, what happens is we put our confidence in our ability to be religious, and that's just as deadly. Because it means your confidence is in your ability to be religious, and you're dead. Because winners put their confidence in Jesus. He writes to them and says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again. And it's a safeguard. Watch out for those dogs. Those men who do evil through mutilators of the flesh. Now, what is he talking about there? Yeah, he's talking about circumcision is what he's talking about. He's talking about people who said, you know, I know that if I'm just religious and I'm, I'm circumcised the way God is supposed to or told me to do so in the Old Testament, that Jewish rite of circumcision, if I'm just circumcised, I know that I will be saved and I know I'm part of God's family. But Paul writes and says, but it's we who are the circumcision. In other words, now just the Gentiles, just Christians, who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. You're religious? So what? If you're really religious, you're probably in danger. Because you probably are relying on your ability to be religious. Read your Bible, go to church, give a little money, 
I have confidence in my ability to follow the religion that's laid out for me and therefore I will be saved. But where is that confidence placed? Me. Because that's what we're told. It's those self-confident people. And what does the scripture say? No. I have confidence in Jesus and only Jesus. One day... I'd like it to be far away from now, but that's the Lord's decision. One day, I will stand before him. And he will say, why should I let you in? And if I give him any answer about my own self-confidence and my abilities, my ability to preach, all the things that I did, I gave a lot of money, I, was, I used my talents for him, I did all this. I, what I'm saying is I have confidence in me. I bought into the world's idea of a blessed person and said a blessed person is self-confident and God is going to say, you missed it. Instead, I'm going to look at him and say, you shouldn't let me <laughs> I'm a sinner and I know it. I plead the blood of Jesus who died for me. And I believe it. And watch those doors open up. Winners put their confidence in Jesus. The world's second beatitude. Here it is. Blessed are those who never suffer loss, for they will always be happy. Because that's what happiness is, you see. You don't lose. You don't lose money. You don't lose people. You don't lose jobs. You don't lose. You just are a winner. You, that's the way the world says. I mean, you look at the people who never have those issues or problems and, and you say to that person who's always happy who's got all the family and friends around them who's got all the money they need you say that person has a blessed life this is God's truth right here blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted and we go what? I know this is hard because it's so contrary to the way we've been raised I know it's difficult. But I want you to understand what Jesus is saying to you here. It looks like this. Winners know that happiness is not found in the absence of sorrow. But in the presence of God. It has nothing to do with whether you lose something in this world or you get to keep. It has nothing to do with whether you get cancer or you don't. All of those things are so temporary. True happiness, rock-solid happiness, is found in the presence of God, regardless of your circumstance. This is what God says. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you won't go down. 
when you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end. Why? Because I am God, your personal God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I paid a huge price for you. All of Egypt with rich Cush and Seba thrown in. Now, this is something that he wrote to the nation of Israel several hundred years before Jesus. If he was going to rewrite this, what would he say? The Holy One of your Savior, I paid a huge price for you. How would he end that sentence? What price did he pay for us? For God so loved the world. Say it with me. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now listen to this one. When you're in over your head I'll be with you. When you're in rough waters you will not go down. When you're between the rock and the hard place it won't be a dead end. Because I am God. Your personal God. The Holy One of Israel. Your Savior. I paid a huge price for you. I gave my son. So that I could know you and bring you home. Which would you choose? A trouble-free life without God or a pain-filled life with Him? Now, let's be honest. Of course, what we want is no pain and God, right? Because we're Americans. <laughs> but as we close this whole thing, there's a good question right there. Which would you choose? God, I would gladly give you up if I never had any more sorrow in my life. Or, it doesn't matter what sorrow I face, Father, as long as you're with me. Didn't somebody write that, something like that long ago? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, why? Why will I fear no evil? Because, boy, didn't he get it right? Happiness isn't found in the absence of suffering. It's found in the presence of God. Jesus looked at this great unwashed of the world sitting on this hill and said, you know what? You got it all wrong. You're envying all those people out there who never suffer loss because you think the most important thing is keeping it all. But you don't even understand. The best thing in this life is knowing God now and forever and when you hurt and you will hurt and when you lose and you will lose the presence of God will be right there with you now is that enough is it enough Father, these are challenging. 
I like the challenge. I don't always like where it leads me because <laughs> it's so often as I'm looking at these that I realize, whoa, I really have bought into the Beatitudes of the world. Father, you're in the process of changing my whole mind about that, and, and I know, and I appreciate all that you're doing in my own life, but what I'm asking for now is the ability not just to know it, but as your son said to us, Jesus, you want us to put it into practice every day. It doesn't mean that we're going to like losing. It doesn't mean we're going to like when we suffer loss or pain. Father, you didn't ask us to like it. But could you help change our minds in that somehow we think we're greater losers because we've lost something, because something hasn't worked out for us? Instead of understanding how blessed we are, because through you, Jesus Christ, the Father is with us always. Thank you, Lord. Amen.